0: All right, if you have your Bibles, we're going to return to the book of Genesis. We've been in in Genesis for a little bit. We find our way now to chapter 2 again. This time we'll be looking down at verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at verse 18 to the end of the chapter as we make our way through these first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And uh, they're flipping it over for me, and I'm sure that'll come. There you go. Genesis chapter 2. And there's an interesting thing that we every time we come to chapter 2, and I think it's good for us to revisit every time we do so, because there's a, there's a transition, and I want us to really make it very clear in our minds that there's, there's really a line that's drawn beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, to chapter 4, verse 26, really uh, is the, the section there that we've looked at, and uh, we'll explain for a second. And then before that, uh, we had chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 4. And there's two kind of things that are at play. And what are the things that are happening? Well, just to review a little bit, we see in chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 4, God takes chaos, really, and he creates order. God takes chaos, we can we, just... At nothing is probably a better way, but I'll show you explain why I use the word chaos in a moment. It'll make more sense, just to kind of help you cement it in your mind. But he takes nothing, and he creates everything. Is another way of saying it. But beginning in chapter two to verse four, we see that God made something good. That's that's the something good that we'll see. And last time we saw all of that in the garden, but here, as God makes something good, we'll see that man devolves that and it goes into and it devolves it devolves into uh, into chaos again what happens really that makes it begin to devolve we always, uh, scientists or scientists air quotes talk about evolution going things you know evolving into something better the bible paints it in a different picture things are not evolving to get better things are devolving and getting worse What is it that made things get worse? Sin, and where do we see sin taking place? What chapter? In chapter three. So we're not there yet. We are still in chapter two, and there are in chapter four. And maybe we'll even—I know we announced that we'll be doing chapter one, two, and three, but we may dip our toe into chapter four because in chapter four you see just how much of a mess the world gets really quickly. It spirals really badly, but here in chapter 2, we see where it all begins, and we see how good God's creation was, and we can even see, as we saw last week, how good God's creation was, and we can see that there are glimpses of this goodness still to be seen in the beauty around us, and how wonderful that is. But now, as we come to verse 18, we see that there are glimpses of this beauty Even in mankind himself, though mankind is fallen, there are still things that are good that mankind has as far as its relationships. And particularly, we'll note a particular relationship at hand. But as we're reviewing, we still note that there are two main things that are at play uh, in chapter one and then in chapter two at play in terms of how it's introducing who God is. And in chapter one, we saw that we have this transcendent God. And what name of God is used to speak of his transcendence? It's re- repeated often in chapter one. What what name of God do we see that's re- repeated? In chapter one, it is the creator God, which is what name? Elohim. Elohim. So to, to emphasize his transcendent nature, we see the name Elohim repeated all throughout chapter one. But in chapter two, what is the emphasis now? Personal. We have his personal relationship with man, and some of you already said it, the name that is repeated there now, or first time it's introduced, is the name Yahweh. And, and specifically, we have this double-barreled name. Uh, we see that it's repeated often, Lord God. And of course, Lord is this name, Yahweh, and God is this name Elohim, and so we have this double-barreled name, and it's intended to show two truths side by side about who God is that stand out even in the pantheon of the false Greek gods and in all of these false gods that we see even up to this day, and that is that the true God is transcendent and powerful, and he made everything, and the true God is also personal and intimate and loving to his creation. And specifically, what creation is he most close to? Man. man, and how can we see that? What does he do with the creation of man that stands out from all the rest of the creation? He personally created, he personally created it. In fact, we, even that image there of him stooping down and he's forming, and the idea of that forming is even seen in Jeremiah. It refers to a potter forming clay. And then he breathes into man the breath of life. And so these two themes, transcendence and the personal touch of God, are set deliberately side by side in the opening chapters of the Bible. And you will find those two themes throughout the rest of the Bible. I mean, just think about it, just for a moment, just in light of the Gospel of Mark that we've been going through. Jesus comes in and immediately what are the two truths that are seen in his relationships with mankind? Are they not his transcendent power over their problems, even seen in his miracles that he's performing, and his personal touch with mankind that ultimately brings him to have this war uh, with the religious leaders of that day? Because to them, you can't have that kind of relationship with certain people. And yet God, Jesus, is laying these truths, truths side by side. And in fact, in one of the passages we'll get to in the Gospel of Mark, he actually says, I'm going to perform this miracle that you may know that I am the Son of God and that you know I have the power to forgive sins. You see those two truths side by side? There's this transcendence and then there's this personal relationship. Yes, God is almighty and all-powerful and in control of everything, But he also wants to forgive your sins and have a personal relationship with you. So there's the transcendence, and then there's the personal relationship with God. Now, we're not just doing that for review, though we are doing that for review, because it is important to review that. But we're doing that in light of what we're about to see now, that God clearly does, beginning in verse 18. And now God, in verse 18, shows to us a powerful truth, And we see it often. And if the verses we saw last week are verses that are often ignored in chapter 2, these verses, I think, are not ignored in chapter 2, and for good reason. Because in chapter 2, they are quoted, obviously, in the New Testament. We'll see that as we close. But in chapter 2, in these verses, we see God's design for marriage. God has a design for marriage, and now we see it in the opening chapters of the book of of Genesis. Look what it says in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to all birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its, flesh, uh, its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here we see God's design for marriage. And this text is the basis for almost everything else the Bible has to say about marriage. It explains God's reason for creating marriage. It gives God's principles for how the marriage relationship should be held together. And it will be the very passage that Paul will reference when quoting what marriage is for, and we will end there this evening in Paul's quotation of this very passage. But human beings, as the pinnacle of God's creative narrative, are created for them something that no other other being has, that Adam sees in part, but not in full, that mankind now has in full. And the purpose of marriage is twofold, and we'll start first, With this purpose of marriage as it is given to us. God created marriage, number one, for companionship. God created marriage for companionship. And we'll be in this part for just a moment here. Because there's a word, there's something that just absolutely should shock us as we read it in verse 18, because it is so different than everything else we've read up to this point. Beginning in chapter one, verse one, coming all the way down to chapter two, verse 17, and now in chapter two, verse 18, there are some words that are vastly different and should shock us as we read them. What should shock us in verse 18? It is not good. good. There, There is something not good this should be abrupt. This, this, this should really stand out in your thinking and in your mind, and it is intended to be that way. Something is not good. Now, throughout all of chapter 1, and as we surveyed before, we see the repeated use of the word, word good. Let's come back and, and, uh, oh, I got all my notes here, so let me clear that page and we'll come back to it. So let's go back and I want you to see all these times that God is using it so it can kind of stand out in your mind. Come to verse 10. Uh, Verse 10 it says, and God created all that there was and behold, it was very good. And then in verse 12, he saw all these things and he said, it was very good. And then you come down to verse 18 and he saw all that it was, and God saw that it was very good. And then you come to verse 21, and it says God created the great sea creatures and all that, and it saw that it was very good. Then you come to verse 25. Verse 25, and all that it was, and God saw that it was very good. And then you come to verse 31, and it says it again in verse 31. and God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. Good, and so on, and it continues on through that until now you come to verse 18 and you are struck with something. It is not good. And this is the first time in the Bible that God says this, there is something that is not good. Rick? I, and a key thing for me about this is that sin hasn't yet entered mm-hmm. into the scene. Absolutely. Isn't that interesting? Uh, that, that, you're absolutely right. Sin has not yet entered into the scene. I mean, think about where man is. That This is man in a perfect state, in a perfect environment. We talked about the environment that he was in last week. I mean, it is the Garden of Eden. In a perfect fellowship with God, how could you want more than that? You've got everything. Isn't that enough? Apparently God's evaluation was that man needed something else. There was something else that needed to correspond to man. It was not good that man was alone. It, it, it is not good, God says, it is not good that man is alone. So, sometimes super spiritual people almost indicate like they, they're, they're closer to God when they're lonely. There's, there's even you say really yeah well think about it in terms of medieval ages right you got those uh, monks and those monasteries I think I have told you before there was a um, uh, uh, like a, a Catholic one of those in, in our area where the it was for ladies uh, so nuns and they would take a vow of silence and and secrecy and it was in New Hampshire and they would go in and they never came out until one time there was a fire in one of the buildings and they had to evacuate nobody. Nobody got hurt or anything at all, but the newspaper cameras were all right there because you know nobody had seen these people for years, and now they're all coming out, and the news people thought that was fascinating to see them all pouring out, right? You say, is it real, do people really think that you get all by yourself, you can get closer to God? Apparently so, for generations. This is what was going on. Martin Luther at one point, pre-conversion, thought that that would help him get closer to God. And if you read the story of Luther's um, coming to God, you'll find that Luther tried a lot of things, all of them failed, until he came to a saving knowledge of God. One of them was to just get alone. There's this, under, there's this, there's this thinking. And, and we'll come to understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that God has called some to remain single. There is a calling there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But a single calling in 1 Corinthians 7 does not mean a loneliness calling. There is still an understanding that man and woman and people in general, God created to have fellowship. Not just with God, but here we see with other people. And so we immediately know, you've often heard, that it takes three people to make a good marriage. We often refer to it as the marriage triangle. Maybe you've seen this marriage triangle before. That's obviously not a perfect triangle. It's the best I could do on the screen this evening. With God at the top, and you've got man over here, and woman over here. And the closer you are, the the, the faster you run to God, the closer you will be to your spouse. That is God's design for marriage. And in startling picture though he says it's not good it is not good that man will be alone I will make for him a helper that's what I'm going to do I'm going to make a helper fit or suitable for him now this word for helper I want you to know immediately this is not a demeaning word Sometimes you, you, I think in our culture, you almost think of it as a servant or something demeaning in that light, but that is not the word that is being used here. The the Hebrew word for helper is a word often used of God's help for those that are in distress. I will help those. Imagine someone in, in distress, like, on a, on, a, on a boat, in the middle of the ocean, and the waves tossing to and floor, and, and God's going to use, uh, give to this person help. That's the word that's being used here. It's actually a word of incredible strength in the Hebrew, actually. It's a very strong word. It's a very powerful word. It, it's a word that says, I'm gonna give to the man something, someone who is very strong. There's gonna be, it's gonna be a supporter. It points to the husband's, actually, in this word, it points to the husband's dependence on the wife. As if to say, you, as a man, you just, you just can't do this by yourself. And, and this is when all the husbands should be saying amen and, you know, whatever else you could think of right now, right? Uh, this is great message right before Valentine's Day. Yeah, uh, all those kind of things. No, Valentine's Day already over. I'm sorry. That was not very romantic of me. My wife's in... Day my w- of the it's, it's what? It's the International Day of the Woman. Today is? Yes. Oh, well, there you go. I, I knew that, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I mean, Rick said it's the International Day. What's that? Yeah, anniversary. That's right. I, yeah, <laughs> thank you, Ron. Just make sure you remember your anniversary and you're okay. Actually, now we're getting sidetracked, but my senior pastor got married on his wife's birthday. And he used to say, then I only have to remember one day. And I used to tell him, yeah, but if you forget... That one day you are in big trouble. <laughs> anyways, he's creating a helper. The point of this word is what I'm trying to say is that the word "helper" really equals power or, or strength I, i'm gonna create, I'm going to give to man this powerful support. This is not a, a weaker word and, and, he, and he notes, and I kind of didn't give myself much room to note this word now, but the word." I do want to highlight, so I'm going to use a different color to try to get it, is the word fit, or, or sometimes it could be translated, the word could be translated suitable for him, suitable for him. Literally, uh, it could be referred to as corresponding, corresponding to. I'm going to create one that is corresponding to him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11 says, God designed it so that man needs the woman, and woman needs the man. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11. And, and I want you to note that man and woman, and I'll, I'll zoom out to give some more di- space here, but man and woman are created differently. Did you notice that? I hope you did, right? <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 7, how is man created? Dust, right? He's created out of dust. And Eve now is created in chapter 2, verses 21 through 22. Eve is created. How is she created? Out of the rib. rib. Why out of the rib? Let's, Let's zoom in on that. Let's read those verses. It says, immediately, he's going to show us how Eve was created. It says, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took out one of his ribs to close up in his place, and the rib the Lord God had taken him to the man; he made and the woman brought her to the man. So why, why out of the rib? Side. Out of her side. Out of his side. Why out of the rib? Near his heart. Near his heart. Absolutely. Because it's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. It's bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. God did this to show Adam physically that his wife was a part of him. What is that indicating? She is equal with him, is what it's showing. She is not lower than him. She is equal to him. That is right there in the opening pages of the Bible. That here is this woman, and they correspond, and we'll understand they have different roles, but their different roles does not mean that one is superior over the other. Immediately we're seeing God has created these two different roles that are equal, and he creates her out of the rib. Now, here's a question. Why didn't God create Adam and Eve simultaneously? Certainly he had the power to do so. Certainly he could have just done it at the same time. Why did he not create them at the same time? He wanted to have Adam see his need. And to Justin's point, well, to the Bible's point that Justin's pointing at, (laughs) read verse 19. This is why. Out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. So this is Adam's job. Went around naming all these creatures. And the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of heaven, and every beast of the field. So that's what he's doing But there was a problem that Adam now is noticing, and it's bothering him. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And notice the word that is now being used. It's the same word that we just saw used earlier. Of course it is, because the Bible wants to make a point. He's not finding one that is suitable for him. Why did not God not make them at the same time? He wanted Adam to see there was a need. He wanted Adam to be aware of that need. When when you have a need, and then you have that need met, you rejoice because you knew you had a need. But there are also times in your life, especially when you're young and you're little and you're just totally naive to life, and you have no idea that there's a need until later in life, mom and dad say, you know, remember when we got a new car and that was we praised the Lord for that and God provided that for your family? And you're like, yeah, I remember that. And they're like, well, mom and dad had been praying that God would meet that need. Now, when you were little, you didn't know. Like, you had no idea that there wasn't even a need there. And then later on, maybe mom and dad told you there was a need and now you can rejoice in retrospect, but it's not gonna be quite the same as if you were aware of the need, and then you watch God providentially provide for that need. And so God has created Adam, he's given him a job, go in, name all these animals, he's going around, he's naming them, and he's noticing something. I don't have something that they have. And so God creates that, and he does so, and God causes him to fall into this deep sleep, and he slept, and took one of his ribs, and he forms it, and then I want you to notice what happens. Because it's pretty cool. Then it says, Then the man said, These are the first spoken words of man in the Bible. It's kind of cool. Just, just that alone makes it pretty neat. The first time in all of the Bible that we read any man say anything. And this is quite a quote. And he says, This He says, this at last. Kyle and Delish, which is an old commentator series, uh, says, uh, they translate this at last as this time. Another commentator, Jameson Fawcett Brown, that translate it, says it, now at last. The idea is, this is the very thing that I've been looking for. There it is finally. And you can see the enthusiasm that you could almost said, yeah, another translator put it uh, this way, this at last. Yes, this is the one, is the idea. And you can put all the exclamation points you want next to that. Finally, I've been waiting for this. And I want you to notice something that's really interesting. The Lord going back to verse 21, and, and 22, and the rib the Lord had taken from the man, he made the woman, and I want you to notice that God actually brought her to the man. So if you can imagine in the first wedding ceremony, God is the one walking her down the aisle, if you were. Sometimes I guess in our minds I'm thinking like Adam woke up from the sleep and there she was. And that's, that's not how it is depicted here. Apparently, he was awake, lucid enough, and aware, and then she comes. How did she come? Here she comes. God brings her in, and, he's, and Adam didn't wake up with Eve by his side, roll over, and wow, there she is. He was awake. God is the one seemingly walking her down the aisle, to use our analogies in, that we're familiar with with weddings, and he says she, he called, he called her woman, because she was taken out of the man. And there's actually an interesting kind of Hebrew usage here that, uh, that you can see even right away. The, the, the word woman is, is, the, is the Hebrew word, is shasha, uh, if you will. And I don't see a lot of people using that for names for themselves. And the name for man is ish. And so the idea is it was taken, she was taken out of man. He wasn't just saying, um, as the old country preacher said, he saw her and he was taken aback. Have you heard this one? And he said, whoa, man. That's where he got <laughs> Right? That wasn't what was going on, right? But there is isn't a sense in which he was taken out of man. And God brought her to man, Adam as the perfect, exquisitely crafted gift from God to meet Adam's deepest need at that time. And then he says, for that reason, therefore, and of course, anytime you see a therefore, you pause and you look at what it's there for. Yeah. For this reason. And this is an interesting pause. Because it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You say, why is this here? Because yeah. there, you have to think, yeah. like, yeah, they don't have a mother and father. <laughs> Neither did they have belly buttons, apparently, for that reason, right? Just think about that for a moment. Yeah. They don't have mothers and fathers. This is Adam and Eve. They are the first father and mother. So this verse is not for them. Now, who's writing the book of Genesis? Moses. Moses. I read one commentator that said these are the first commentary mo- notes in the Bible, right? Moses is now telling us, under pen of inspiration, so God is telling us, the purpose for which this is happening. Therefore, Moses makes a note of what marriage is supposed to look like. So based on the first marriage ceremony, he's saying, therefore, based on the first ceremony, this is what marriage will look like. This is what it should look like. And there are really two things that immediately stand out about the first marriage ceremony. And the first is which marriage is a matter of leaving. Therefore shall a man, and he says therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. This is an important consideration. Because Adam and Eve, remember, did not have a mom and dad. So why include this injunction? God is establishing a biblical pattern. When a a new couple says, I do, and they walk down the aisle, they now have in-laws, but they are leaving their parents for each other. That's really important, right? It would be inappropriate for the spouse, the husband, or the wife to continually to go back to mom and dad for all kinds of things. And it would likewise be inappropriate for mom and dad to keep coming back to the spouse and say, I need this, this, and this from you. Because once they say, I do, their primary relationship on earth is with that spouse. And we understand that. We see that. Right here in scripture, they are leaving to form something. Now, you imagine this would have been very important, especially in the early stages of creation as man are going on, but especially within the the Hebrew context to which Moses is writing. You know, anything about what they're doing, this would have been an important injunction for them to include. So part of marriage is, number one, that they would be leaving, and number two, what is the other part of marriage? Not only do you leave, but you cleave. cleave. (laughs) If you want to keep it rhyming, you could say they leave and they cleave. What it says, it says, "And he is to hold fast to his wife." And what that means is marriage should be an exclusive relationship. Hold fast. There's, there's an exclusivity there. If a couple builds their relationship around anything other than each other, that relationship is destined to fail. If a couple builds their relationship around their children, as valuable and as much of a gift as that is from our Heavenly Father, what happens to couples who build their relationships around their children and then their children leave their house and they're empty nesters? They don't even know each other because their relationship was built around their kids, not each other. And so often the devil uses good gifts to distract us from good gifts. And in so doing, he lies to us and takes away the real purpose. If a couple builds their relationship around a career, his or hers, there could be all kinds of problems that can arise. You can, you can add anything to it. I mean, you can make your own list. Your primary human relationship, if you are married, is your spouse. In fact, for husbands, in the New Testament, the Bible says that you now become the perpetual uh, student of your wife. <laughs> in other words, you learn her. You, you get to know her for the rest of your life. You don't have to... Men, this should help you out. You say, I don't know if I can know how women think. Well, neither can I, but you only have to know how one woman thinks, right? That's all. You just have to know, you just have to learn that one woman. And it may take your whole life to figure that out. But that is your job, to figure that that is your job. And it's a good, loving thing. It's an exclusive relationship. But there's another aspect of, of cleave. Not only, we could say, is this uh, uh, exclusive, that the, the, the idea of exclusivity uh, is, is here. Not only is this exclusive, I know I didn't spell it right, there you go, exclusive, but what else does this mean? Well, not only is it exclusive, but this is permanent. I, I, I hold fast. You're, again, using the children illustration, your children are with you for a few precious years. That's wonderful. But then they will go, be gone. You're, you have a permanent life partner. Matthew 19, verse 6 puts it this way. What God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. I, you often hear that at the end of a wedding, right, after they say, I do, and I do, and then you may kiss, and then they present, I would like to present to you, you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, and then the preacher will often say, what God has joined together, let no man pull asunder. Why is he saying that? Well, w- well, let's put it this way. When we have weddings, and we have gra- gatherings together, why, why gather people together for weddings? to celebrate, absolutely, and that should be a celebration. There are certain things that churches do that are worth celebrating. Baptisms are worth celebrating. Weddings are worth celebrating. But why gather them together? Witnesses. Witnesses. The Bible refers to the wedding vows. What is the word that the, like a biblical word for wedding vows is used? It starts with a C. A covenant. And a covenant is made, it's a a vow between God, but often in the presence of others. So the next time you're invited to a wedding, especially a Christian wedding, you realize that your presence there is to help that now young couple remember the vows that they made to one another. And that's a wonderful thing that that you have been invited into. And, And you can help them. And you can say, hey, you know, because, you know, life relationships are not disney for the rest of your life, right? You know, they got married and they lived happily ever after and how wonderful that was, right? It's almost like, you know, it, I don't know, that just doesn't exist. And you, you can help that young couple see, hey, through the difficult times, let me encourage you to remain faithful to the vows that you made one to another that I was a witness of, that's why I'm there. Yes, it's to celebrate that, but also down the road we can come back to a remembrance of that wonderful thing. And so you've seen the marriage math equation, I'm sure. And the marriage math equation is one man <coughs> plus one woman for one lifetime. And there's a lot we could digest right there and we have before, in this uh, not in this sermon, but I have preached on this before, uh, it does say one man and one woman. And I think it is wise to pause there in our culture. Unfortunately, we have begun to decide that we can redefine what man is and what woman is, but the Bible's very clear. And uh, if we had more time, we could go through all of the feminine and masculine words that are used here. Which, by the way, is true of most language outside of English. There are feminines and there are masculine words. And here, there is a clear delineation, and there is a clear role. And so he says in verse 24, to his, and immediately, I want us to know, just because we are students of God's word, and we see things in God's word that God allows, but not because God wants them, but because of mankind's sin. In the Old Testament, we see all these people with tons of wives, David and Solomon and the like. That is not God's intention here. This is singular. This is one woman. It's singular. Monogamy is God's design. There was sin that allowed it. And they shall become, and here it says, these two shall become one flesh. And this companionship requires And intimacy, and this is more than just physical, by the way, this word. This is relational and emotional oneness as well. And sin always hinders intimacy in relationships. Proverbs 2, verse 17 says, He who abandons the companion of his youth forgets the covenant of his God. So while as fallen sinners we can never experience what Adam and Eve with one another had before the fall... We can't experience that. To the extent that we deal with our sin before God and one another and grow in holiness, we will grow in personal intimacy, which comes back to that triangle illustration. Closer you run to God, closer your spouse runs to God, the closer you will be to to each other, and that also indicates that this takes work. Good marriages aren't the result of luckily finding the right partner. Like Good thing that happened. Good marriages are the results of couples who daily work at it. And as soon as you say, I do, you did. And now work at it. But God didn't just design marriage, going back, God didn't just design marriage for companionship. That is an aspect of it. But God also designed marriage, interestingly enough, God designed marriage number two, I need to uh, work on those, God designed marriage number two as an illustration. This marriage will picture something and the Bible says that God created marriage for a bigger picture than just you. Marriage becomes the picture of a believer's relationship with God. Now, for that, I want you to keep your mind focused on Genesis 2, but come to Ephesians chapter 5. And I'll put Ephesians 5 on the screen, but I want you to open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 32 is where we'll look at it, beginning in verse 32, we find that Moses is quoting, actually beginning in verse 31, Moses is quoting from Genesis 2, verse 24, to make a point. So under the pen of inspiration, he will quote from the passage we just read, to make a very compelling point. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's what verse? That's Genesis 2, verse 24. So he's quoting it, and now he's going to show us the, what's going to happen. Well, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. This is a profound mystery. There's a lot of mysteries in the New Testament that Paul, on the pen of inspiration, as the apostle to the Gentiles, has the wonderful privilege of unlocking for us. that We can understand. And he is saying that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And if we go backwards in that passage, you'll see exactly what he's talking about and exactly what Paul is making the point. He's really saying in this picture, Christ, what is the role that Christ is playing? What is the picture that Christ is? Christ is the the bridegroom. Christ is the bridegroom. And in this wonderful, mysterious, we could use Paul's word, picture, The church, what does the church equal? The bride. bride. And this becomes a picture. Someone has described marriage as God's doing with one man and one woman that which he is always trying to do within the world as a whole. Now there's a clear application for those that are married. This is why it's so important to develop Christ-honoring marriages. The, The best gospel witness some of us will have will be the relationship we have with our spouse. And your neighbors can watch, and they will be looking over your shoulder, and they should see Christ in that. The question is, do you, does your marriage show off Christ? But now what? And I want to address four groups as we close, and we'll take questions. Number one, the first group, if you are single, and you are content to be single, what are you to do? Well, God's word to you is that your single state is to secure an undistracted devotion to the Lord and his work. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. God gifts that to you and to his church. That's that's not to be viewed on a lower level. This is a gift, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you are single and content to be single, you can be undistracted in your full commitment to the Lord. But if you are single and desired to be married, that's another group. And God's word to you is to grow in godliness and purity and pray and look for someone who is committed to doing the same. You don't want to be married to someone who's not committed to God. You don't want to be the one in the relationship that's trying to get them to be committed to God. That won't work out for you either. Number three, well, what if you're married to an unbeliever? And you can't be this kind of picture because you're saved and the spouse of yours is not. Well, God has a word for you as well in 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7, God's word for you is that you can win your mate to Christ through your godly character and behavior in the home. That's 1 Peter chapter 3. So there's even a word for you. And finally, if you are married to a believer, what is God's word for you? or well, we just read it, God's word for you is to grow in a deeper companionship with your mate that you may better reflect Christ to a lost and dying world. So no matter what state you are in life, God has a word for you, and I want to tie them all together with this understanding that God's word for you is that relationships matter. Your relationship with God matters, and your relationship with others matters. Whatever state you are in, Relationships do matter. And God has a word for you about relationships. Questions, comments as we close this evening? Pastor Paul? Did you have a verse for the single seeking? I did not have a verse for that, but it is. I, you could say, um, it's in Ephesians 2 that talks about that. I didn't write it down, but Ephesians 2. Yes, Paul? When it comes to the matter of leave and fleeing, the mother needs to be willing to cut the other paper <laughs> That's right. That's wise words from Paul. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I. Uh, unfortunately, I know some examples that that wasn't well practiced as well. That that can be a bigger challenge for the newly married couple than anything. When when uh, when her parents or his parents just refuse to let go, that can be really challenging. Tom. Paul's question, that 1 Corinthians 7 covers both those cases. Mm-hmm. It says, it should not be married to pursue a certain relationship. It says, if they can't control themselves, so then they should marry. Yep. And some scriptures about how they do that. Yep. yep. Joe? Out of curiosity, The very last verse in chapter 2, mm-hmm. what is the real purpose of that verse? And the man and his wife are both naked and we're not ashamed. So this is really, if you look at it, this is this is a, um, I want to use I'm trying my mind is blanking of like the literary word when it's like a flash forward of what a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing. there you go. This is a foreshadowing of what's to come. So it is basically a precursor to how they, they have no sin, they don't yeah. no guilt. Exactly. At this point there's no guilt in their minds, there's none of that. But there is, there is to come. And, and the immediate response to God opening their eyes is to clothe themselves with whatever they can grab. Yeah. David? In addition to the showing Adam his need mm-hmm. or a uh, helper that was good for him, wasn't another purpose also a positional responsibility one of creating Adam first Yes, yes. And, 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 and actually, I should have mentioned that because the New Testament makes that point, right? Uh, his point was, not, not only was Adam created first and then Eve to show Adam his need for Eve, but the New Testament makes it point, the point that the, the roles of men and women are seen because, as Paul puts it, Adam was created first and then Eve. And so Paul makes that point about roles. Another reason why uh, Eve was created second would be to show how much in God's image Adam was because Eve was of the same substance as Adam, as same as Christ, is of the same su- substance of God the Father. That's an interesting take. I haven't heard that one, but, I, you know, when you get to heaven, you can ask God and see if you're right. <laughs> but that, that is an interesting thought, yeah, yeah. Bob? So just as a a, kind of a little trail, uh, Nancy and I got really involved in the the colors and the, the, remember the Color Me Beautiful and things like that, all those books and things like that. So we met met the lady who started all that. She was not a Christian, but she said in a conversation that we had, I have noticed that all men look like something, they have a skin tone color that matches something in the earth, and women always have something that's above the earth. And it's just a just a trivial kind of... I still don't uh, know what color I'm supposed to wear. You know, I just kind of guess. You know. I don't know what goes with my skin tone, right? What's that? Um, no, no, Rachel doesn't right. tell me, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Paul? It was mentioned that man is formed like a potter is formed from the yeah. ground differently than animals. Different than animals. But <coughs> in verse 19, it says that the we animals were also formed. What was the verse 19? Verse 19. Out of the ground, Lord. Out of the ground. Yeah. It's a different form than that word is, yes. Yeah. Other comments and questions? These are good. Glad you can think with us. Next week, I hate to say it, but next week things get dark. As next week, as you can see, even see at the beginning of the heading there, we see immediately we'll begin to jump into the fall and things are about to get darker. But I, as we as we kind of get ahead to next week, let me just kind of set the table, and we'll go. We'll we'll be dismissed with this, and on the table center is a, is Steve. I was kind of we reading that too, right before it, shows the fall. I like that. Like, I feel like it also had to just show like the example of marriage mm-hmm. and how it was perfect before the fall. At they mean. give us a glimpse of that. Yeah. Yeah. It gives us it gives us hope, you know. Like You can look at marriage, it was pre-fall, this is what it was supposed to look like. I don't right? and we're going through that now. i noticed that in the next it says, the fall, how perfect it was. And to that point, Steve, that one of the greatest sanctifying ministries God puts in our lives if we're married is our spouse. <laughs> like our, our spouse is going to be our best help in discipling. You know, I I often uh, hear, you know, I I need to get an accountability partner and I need to get a discipler in my life. And I understand all that. But there is still a primary relationship that you have that should be pushing you. And it is your spouse. And that that you have a built-in devotional partner and prayer partner and challenger to work closer to God, which is wonderful. But next week we get this fall. And I want a table set for that as we dismiss. You have to you have you have to have something dark as your backdrop to show something sparkly and good. You go into a jeweler shop and they always put the diamond against the black velvet to show the diamond <laughs> off. And oftentimes I think in our in our rush to show people the love of Christ and we should. We want to show them the love of Christ. We don't yet show them their real problem. And if you don't show them their real problem, their real sin problem, the love of Christ doesn't really mean as much to them. So there has to be a, a fall that we explain well to our folks. And, and I don't know if, if it's correct yet to say that we live in a post-Christian culture, if you've heard those phrases. We may be moving pretty quickly towards it. And that idea is that there are just folks that have no understanding of the Bible to grasp onto. Like you just start talking about Jesus and they're just not... You know, it used to be you could talk about Jesus and at least they have a Sunday school understanding of sin and the like. And it's kind of coming to the point where sin has been so watered down and redefined that we don't know just how ugly sin is. And so yes, Genesis 3 is gonna get really ugly really fast, but it has to be if we're gonna see the resplendent glory of God's grace. And I, I, I think our culture needs to we need to feel the guilt of our sin more than we, more than we normally do. We, we need, we need church, churches that are willing to preach hard against sin and stand against it because it, it, is, it is in the Bible, certainly, but it does show us the grace and mercy of God. If we don't know of ourselves as sinners, there is no hope for us. If we're not willing to admit that, we can't be saved because we're saying we don't need to be saved. Rick? If you don't know that you have sin. You have no need of a savior. Exactly. If you don't know how you have sinned, you have no need of a savior. So if you come back next week, I don't want to go. It's going to be dark. Well, I I do want you to come next week. Yes. I saw an ad on TV for a new TV show coming up called Brother Huffins. It's the sequel to The Sister Lies, where one woman has multiple husbands. And it's on TV. Just parading in our sin is what our culture (laughs) is. Just absolutely celebrating just debauchery but let's pray together as we close. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and Lord, that you can define for us what relationships look like in marriage and otherwise. Lord, uh, may we live according to that and uh, Lord, we're thankful even as we look ahead and we see the fall that you are a savior who is ready to save and wanting to save and Lord, may we point those who are lost to you. We pray this in your name, amen. amen. Thank you, you are dismissed this evening. Amen.